So this also meant that composers were able to get their hands on much more music. And so there was much more influence. Uh, what had been essentially a national tradition before the early Baroque, we can talk about uh, Renaissance music in France, in Italy, in Germany, in Spain, and those were national traditions because until 1501, it was not possible for these composers to as easily get their hands on uh, some of the music. But after 1501, that changes dramatically, and composers are able to receive the influence of music from, from different countries. Also, new genres of music are created. Uh, for example, music that is for more private uh, consum uh, consumption, uh, if you will, music that is being performed in the household. Uh, this is something that changes dramatically after 1501 as well. Uh, Charlotte Houghton mentioned the um, uh, use of paper. Uh, that also is one of the great innovations of this period. So not only were these manuscripts uh, cheaper to produce because of the uh, impact of the printing press on music, but also they were physically cheaper to produce uh, in terms of the materials that were being used. You didn't have to slaughter an entire cow um, or a sheep and use cow skin or sheep skin for the parchment, but you could now have manuscripts that were made and, and prints that, would made, that were made of paper, which was much, much cheaper, obviously. Rags. And rags. rags, absolutely, and rags as well. Um, okay, so uh, there are two things I want to talk to focus on today. One is uh, changes in musical notation, which I see as a kind of technology, broadly defined. And the other is uh, some of the changes to musical instruments in this period. And I want to focus on one particular instrument that is literally uh, being invented uh, in uh, the late uh, 16th century. First of all, musical notation. And again, this is a very complex topic that we could talk about um, for many, many classes. Uh, suffice it to say that when you think about musical notation and how musical notation evolves and develops throughout the history of music, you can think of it as um, a kind of notation that gets gradually more and more precise, more and more specific. What you have here are two images of manuscripts from the uh, 9th century. Um, this is the 9th century. That's a little bit later, maybe 50 years later. Uh, and uh, these were manuscripts that had a kind of notation um, that was used essentially as a memory aid for melodies that were already committed to memory. And I always tell my students, it's as if you wake up in the morning and you forgot the melody for happy birthday, which would be hard to imagine, but you never know. You forgot the melody for happy birthday, and you ask your friend, your spouse, so, you know, could you please remind me? And the spouse has laryngitis and can't sing, and so the spouse just goes to the blackboard and goes, da, 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 that type of thing, and gives you a actual um, graphic depiction of that melody. But it's a melody that you already know. It's just serving as a memory aid. And that's very much how medieval 9th century notation functioned. Um, for the music uh, scholars, music students in the, in the room, this is known as open staff, non-diastematic, pneumatic notation, if you want the precise term. Okay, then we get
Renaissance. And this is what a typical, typical Renaissance manuscript, music manuscript, looks like. Um, this happens to be a work for four parts, four vocal parts, four voices. Uh, but look at the layout. Um, how many of you read music in this room? Okay. So today we would expect a four-part piece of music to be in what we call score format, meaning that you would have the soprano on the top, the alto below, the tenor, and the bass, all four parts lined up vertically. Uh, but in the Renaissance, that was never the case. Uh, what you have here is the soprano part, the alto part, the tenor part, and the bass part. So they're all kept separate, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Um, now, this made reading music and performing music very different from the way we are used to reading music and performing music today. Notice also, for those of you who know um, modern musical notation, that what we do not have in this score are things like bar lines. There's no sense of measure. Uh, there are no dynamics whatsoever, no piano, forte. Um, so there is a lot of information that is left to you, the performer, to interpret and to add. Um, also notice the fact that the notation, although it looks a little bit like ours, we do have a, uh, a staff, we do have staff lines, and we have notes that are placed on those staff lines. But believe me, it is very different. It's a kind of notation that is not as um, precise or absolute as the one that we have today, meaning that you really have to understand the context. You have to understand what comes before and after a note to know what the uh, durational value of that note actually is. Now, I actually brought a recording of this piece, so let's listen to it. Uh, this is a, um, the Kyrie from the Mass by Josquin. It's the Misa de Beata Vergine from circa 1510. And let's just listen to it, see if you can maybe recognize any of the music. Again, the soprano part is here. Just one second, please. Uh, the soprano part is here, and the alto, and the tenor, and the bass. Let's go back from the beginning, please. Thanks. You can sort of see that. Okay, so there's a lot of uh, training that goes into reading these manuscripts, but the point I'm trying to make is the fact that uh, these four voices are kept very separate and laid out uh, as separate vocal parts and not aligned in a score like we would do uh, today. Another example. Uh, this is a very beautiful, fancy manuscript from uh, uh, slightly earlier, 1480. Just to show you an example of, um, you know, what we we're talking about earlier, this is something before the advent of the printing press in music, before 1501. These would be extremely 
expensive to produce. Not only are they on parchment, but you have all of this beautiful decoration. Some of the best artists in Europe were employed for these, uh, for the um, illumination of these manuscripts. Uh, so music that is really in the hands uh, of the elite and not of the public. Here it is, the first music print ever created from 1501. Um, notice that, um, again, we have this layout that we were talking about earlier, the soprano, the alto, the tenor, and the bass. Soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Um, I could not fit these two uh, pieces of uh, score next to each other, so imagine these as actually being um, you know, horizontally uh, laid out. Um, but so some of the same things we talked about earlier apply to the first printed music from the early 16th century. But here now is a dramatic shift. Here we have jumped uh, forward about a century, uh, 1609. This is the publication of Monteverdi's L'Ofeo from 1609, the opera that was premiered in 1607. And what do you notice, first of all? Well, bar lines, for one, okay? So there is a sense of, uh, of well-defined, um, not only meter, but defined measures or bars. So we have these, you know, measure lines right there. Uh, but you also have now all of the parts as a score. Now, this happens to be a piece of monody, meaning one vocal line accompanied by... Um, just a basso continuo or harpsichord or lute type of instrument. But if I had picked something that was a choral piece, you would have had the same thing. You would have had all the parts actually vertically aligned and not separate as we had earlier. Um, I would like to play this as well, please. Um, okay, now, as I said, this is a good example of monody, meaning that you have a single vocal line accompanied by a, an instrument that is taking this bass line that you have right here in your score uh, and adding chords on top of those bass notes. Now, this segues into some of the developments in musical instruments. Music is changing dramatically. New genres of music are being introduced starting around 1600. Uh, monody as a kind of texture is being introduced in around 1600. And that means that new instruments had to be created in order to support uh, this type of vocal singing. Um, this is another example that I'm, well, let's just maybe look at this very quickly. Uh, this is yet another example of Monteverdi. This is actually his own handwriting, uh, a manuscript of Monteverdi's uh, L'Incronazione di Pipopea, his last opera. And again, everything is aligned. And you have bar lines, and you have a lot of information that you did not have in a typical Renaissance manuscript. Um, 
And again, speaking of um, instruments, we'll get back to this in a second. One of the instruments that is invented in just about 1600, give or take, is the instrument of the theorbal. Now, the theorbal is this funny-looking instrument. I always wonder how theorbal players are able to get through security checkpoints at airports these days. I mean, this is a huge, long instrument. Um, and uh, the theorbal was created. Uh, it is a plucked string instrument that was developed in Florence in the very, very late 16th century um, as part of that Florentine camerata that I talked about one day in uh, lecture. Uh, its creation was inspired by the demand for extended bass range in opera, the big new genre from this period, and by development of the basso continuo. The basso continuo is that um, technique that I just mentioned where you have just the bass line uh, given by the composer and the performers are asked to improvise, as it were, chords above that bass line. Um, the theorbo has between 14 and 19 pairs of strings. And the reason that it's so long is because you have these extremely long strings. And those are the bass strings. That's what I mean by extended bass range. Uh, and the solo music for this instrument is notated in something called tablature. You have an example of that. Essentially, it's a graphic, a visual type of notation. Uh, that is still in part used today when you uh, play guitar music. Uh, but it's something that really started in the Renaissance and has continued since, since then. Um, these are just some images of uh, a fiorable from every angle. Uh, beautiful instruments for sure. Uh, and let me give you now a sense of uh, the sound of this instrument. This is actually a photograph that we took uh, at the Moments of Change um, uh, Apollo's Fire concert last November. There was a theorbal player in that orchestra, for those of you who were in Schwab. Uh, and uh, so again, just notice how long this instrument and how cumbersome this instrument can be to play. Uh, it started as an accompanying instrument, as an instrument that was there to support vocal singing. Uh, but it soon became also used as a solo instrument, as an instrument that was... Um, um, you know, considered a solo instrument in its own right, like a harpsichord would, would be or like a violin would be and so on. And what you have here in the uh, clip I'm going to uh, play for you is uh, an example of a work by uh, Kapsberger, a German composer, and it's a work known as the Toccata Arpeggiata, written in 1603. <laughs>
Okay. Um, I want to try one more thing here, if the technology will assist me, which hopefully it will. YouTube, there are a number of really good um, video clips of uh, famous theorable play players today. Uh, the one I found was uh, a work by Robert de Vizet uh, from a little bit later. But uh, it's really fun to see how these instruments are played. Anyway, you can do this um, when you go home and uh, just uh, do the search on uh, YouTube if you are interested. Uh, I think I'll stop there so that we have a bit of time for questions and for discussion.